have a Bible, we can turn with me again to the 14th chapter of John. John's Gospel. And I'll be reading uh, again the first 14 verses of this uh, chapter of John's uh, Gospel. This is God's Word and it is true. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, who can say to you, Show us the how can you say to, how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of my works themselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's ask the Lord to bless us with open hearts and minds as we look into His Word this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, on that night in which He was betrayed, He spoke these words of comfort and exhortation and encouragement to His disciples. And therefore, because it is still true, it is still Your Word, these are still the words of Jesus, and they come to us as disciples of his in this day, that you would bless us as we look into them this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, you remember uh, last week I introduced this general theme of this particular section of John's Gospel. Jesus is dealing with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. The next day he would be crucified. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. And in these last words of Jesus to his disciples, he's dealing, particularly in this chapter, with the heart problems of his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's where the problem is, in the heart. <coughs> these disciples were going to experience some things, really, in the next few moments, uh, as well as the next few hours, and Jesus uh, is dealing with them 
trying to address in his disciples those things that they would experience, they would feel, and they would think as he goes before them because they're of their need of encouragement. And the two issues that are in the text this morning that I want to deal with are mindsets and ideas that might have come to the eleven and certainly have continued among God's people through the ages. Uh, that, the first one is the feeling of uselessness. The feeling of uselessness in the world in which we live, in the culture in which we live. What am I good for? What am I good for? What can I do? What can we do as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uselessness. And then inadequacy is the second one. That is, even if I do see something that needs to be done or that might be done, I certainly can't do it. The task of the church seems utterly overwhelming, as I'm sure it would for the disciples. And so we look today at how Jesus addresses these common needs, uh, which are another portion, if you will, of the heart problems that we experience and have in common. Now, first again, you need to look at the context in which the words down at the end of this section are found. The context of verses 12 through 14, Jesus is addressing those uncomfortable hearts of the disciples. First, Thomas asks the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus gives to him that outstanding statement of all time, of all time, and of all people that... He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And then Philip asks another question. Because Jesus had given this a multiple occasion or a multiple expression of His unity with the Father. And so Philip asks Him, Lord, show us the Father. And uh, this is something that John has already talked about in his Gospel in the first chapter of the Gospel, the most important thing for us to understand about Jesus was in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9 of chapter 1, the true light which enlightens every one was coming into the world. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen the God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made Him known to us. And then verse 12, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be called the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of men or flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What Jesus is about in His person, in His words, in His work, is this one thing, and that is the revelation of the Father. That's the primary thing that in this chapter we've seen in the various verbs that are used. To know the Father is to know Jesus. To see the Father is to see Jesus. To believe, which is the summary word, is to know and believe not only in Jesus, but in His Father as 
well. So here in verse in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said that He has spoken all these words from the Father because they are by nature the Father's words because Jesus and the Father are one. Now He speaks further in support and in fortification, if you will, of what He has said. You see the words and you've read the words and the disciples have heard the words of Jesus. And sometimes even the words themselves leave the person in doubt. But in Jesus' case, you remember, his, and this is what he says here, don't just listen to my words, but consider the works that I do as well. It's not just the words, but to back up what I say in my words, let me show you some works. Remember, the, just one example of that is an astounding example in Mark's Gospel, that wonderful account of the four men who brought their friend who was crippled from birth, and they dug through the roof of the house and they let him down at Jesus' feet. And uh, everyone was wondering, what is he going to do? What is he going to say to this man who's been so racked by this terrible happening? And what does Jesus say? The first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. Right. That's what everybody was thinking. Your sins are forgiven. But then Jesus, remember, while everyone was thinking, who does he think he is forgiving this man's sins? Jesus says, which is easier to say? Forgive his sins, for your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? It's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus turned to the man and said, pick up your bed and walk. To the end of the word argument, if you will, Quibbling about words. If there were any doubts, Jesus said, pick up your dick and walk. And he did. <laughs> he did. Would you love to have been there that day? I mean, any one of Jesus' miracles, I often thought as I read through the gospel, 5,000 people, 5 million people, plus something. But this is exactly what Jesus says here. You don't have to just pay attention to my words. Look at what I've done. Obviously, you can argue with words, but you can't argue with deeds. And so to see is to believe. To not see, to shut your eyes, to shut your eyes to what Jesus has said and done, that is the unbelief. And those are the options that, are before, that were before the disciples in Jesus' day. They're the same options that are in front of people today. To see, to have our minds open, is to believe. To shut our eyes, to shut the eyes in unbelief, is the only other option. Now, in addition to Jesus' works, um, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. 
to make of that kind of profound statement? In 1992, I was laying in bed one morning and I got a call that my brother had passed away. Lee was a good guy. He was a fine Christian, very generous, faithful husband. He came home for one day carrying the mail. He took a shower, he laid down on the living room floor, and he had a brain aneurysm and he died right on the floor. There wasn't anything that anybody could have done for him. Well, as you can imagine, uh, the family gathered in Seattle for the funeral. And uh, when I went uh, to the funeral, a woman came up to me at the church there and told me uh, what a wonderful brother I had. And then she said words that absolutely startled me, and I'll never forget that. She said this, Lee was such a great God and such a wonderful Christian that I thought sure when he died we were going to have a Lazarus experience. Are you getting this? Who's Lazarus? Come forth out of the grave. Now on the one hand, you might say that this woman had an incredible amount of faith in what Jesus had said in John 14, verse 12. Except that she did not believe that. She did not believe that. For if she had truly believed it, she would have raised my brother from the dead, cured that as aneurysm, and he would have lived another 40 or 50 years. You see the problem with a passage like this? He who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to follow. Either it's just a lack of faith that keeps any one of us from doing the kinds of things that Jesus did, not good things, not kind things, not helpful things, not being generous, but we would do real miracles even greater miracles than Jesus did. That WWJD bracelet that people used to wear on their arms would take on a whole new meaning, wouldn't it? It certainly would. It's either that, or we have to think it means something else, and if we start saying, well, it means something else, then we get, then we get accused of fudging on what Jesus said. Oh, you were like to believe what Jesus said. You're just making that other stuff up just to get out, to get out of what the obvious meaning is. Well, now, even as a preacher, I have to admit this is certainly one of those one of those rather difficult passages in the Gospel of John. But I think we can both understand it and will prove to be profitable to us and encourage us. First of all. Put your mind on the last phrase of verse 12, where Jesus says, because I am going to the Father. We've already been told by the Lord Jesus that he is departing to his Father's house to prepare a place for those who are his disciples. That's the reason for this promise. 
as well as the foundation of this promise. Without that truth, the fact that Jesus is going to his Father, without that truth, the promise contained in these verses would be and could not be fulfilled. Why is that? Well, he will go to the Father having completed the integral part of the eternal covenant plan of God. That is, he would go to the Father having accomplished redemption. He accomplished redemption. If you don't know that term, uh, find John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, one of the best Christian books you'll ever read. But Jesus accomplished redemption. Everything that needed to be done for the salvation of your souls and anybody else in the world or throughout history was done by the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. But now the rest of the plan has to be put into place, has to be put into effect. And what is that? The other half of the title, Redemption Applied. Redemption Applied. As the redemption is fully applied, they know that they will see Jesus. That they will see God. Verse 3 is all about that. I will come and I will take you to be with me. Perhaps they could believe that Jesus would do that. But what's going to happen in the meantime? He's gone. He's coming. There's this space of time in between. Ah, the promise of verse 12 through 14 is made for those of us who have been left behind. There's work for the disciples of Jesus Christ to do. There's work for the disciples. Listen again to what Jesus says. This time is a literal translation from the Greek. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater than these will he do. The, the grammar and the vocabulary in this passage is really going to help us out. Whoever believes, if you know your grammar, this is called a present active participle. It implies an action that has begun and is going to continue to take place. It's an ongoing exhibition of obedience and faith in Christ. It's not a one-time experience. Oh, I believe, I went forward, I prayed a prayer, whatever, however it's calculated. No, what Jesus is talking about here is the life of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to pick up on that in verse 15. If you love me, can we say, if you believe in me, if you trust me, if you know me, if you see me, you will what? Keep my commandments. It's not just an intellectual, doctrinal thing. It's not just what you grew up with as a child because you came to Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's not what they practice at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's not just an experience that you once had. It is, if you will, the lifestyle to be actively concerned with the things, the truth, the reality of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the works that I do. I think it's pretty obvious that it refers to 
directly what, to what Jesus is speaking of in verses 10 and 11. What did he say there? Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. But were these works of Jesus limited to the outward, physical, and miraculous works of Jesus? Is it just limited to feeding the 5,000 and raising Lazarus from the dead and healing Bartimaeus and walking on water and calming the storm and healing all varieties of these? If so, if it's limited to that, in some way or other, we're in considerable trouble as disciples in this day, where it's obvious that from the time that Jesus spoke these words, his disciples all across the world have not been able to do that sort of thing. I think the better question in the mind of Jesus is, were the physical miracles Jesus' primary work while he was on the earth? I think that John himself records words that help us out. John 5. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the Son from the dead and gives Him life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Is that just talking about raising Lazarus? dead six chapters later. Now, the physical miracles of Jesus, as I said, are awesome. They struck those people who experienced them and saw them with utter amazement. That was the design. But those little things, those little things, like changing water into wine, cleansing the skin of a leper, restoring one born blind from birth. Jesus was simply putting on display the omnipotence and the goodness of God. But the deeper work of the Lord Jesus in the hearts and in the lives of people who were drawn to God and the glory of God in repentance and faith Obviously, that is where all the grace and the mercy of the Father is displayed. And so Jesus adds the phrase, greater than these works he will do. You see, the point is, we are people who want to be entertained. We, we, we want to be Christians who are like the great Houdini who did uh, okay, a day of property, or uh, that's a little more contemporary. We want to see really cool stuff happen in the church. But we hang way, way, way too much on the physical. And so as Jesus speaks to the ten, to the eleven disciples here, he speaks literally of them with respect to the physical works. Yes. They would see some occasional continuation of miraculous works. Read the book of Acts. You find the accounts of Dorcas and Eutychus and Ananias and Sapphira and speaking in tongues and so forth. 
But those few incidents are minor and secondary to the primary work of these disciples of Jesus. And none of those physical miracles was essential and necessary to pass on to the rest of the believers throughout the ages. It's not that we don't believe in miracles in modern days. There are miracles, I think. But if you follow the New Testament pattern, pattern they're, they're not accomplished by the direct hands of one person touching another or punching another person in the forehead or whatever uh, goes on. But it always comes in absolute amazement to the people of God and true disciples. What I'm saying is this, that the work that was begun and passed on to the eleven who heard these words in the upper room and that are passed on to us in this passage was the work that ordinarily results in the salvation of the souls of men. In the same realm, Jesus' most important work, the apostles would carry on those greater works of bringing people to the Father. For example, it's not likely, it may be possible, but it's not likely that more were ever converted to Christ on one day to true faith in Christ than the 3,000 that came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people. That was significant, and that continued. Jesus, he didn't take his gospel to Africa, to Asia, to Europe. The disciples did. The wondrous words in the New Testament speak of the greater works than these. It was the apostles, these apostles, who opened the door of the treasury of the gospel, of the mercy of God, the Jew, the Gentile, the barbarian, Scythian, Cretan, Indian, African, and Asian. Paul speaks of it. Ephesians 3. To bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be, hidden, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. They may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Second Corinthians chapter 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we take thought every to every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's what we have to do in our age. Open the doors of the gospel to the world. Destroy arguments that come in the face of God's word. As believers in the church, sometimes we feel kind of useless. This is a promise that applies to us right now. For greater than a physical work, greater than a miracle, 
greater things than you and I can see with our eyes. God is accomplishing in the church and by the church across this world, even in this day. Now the question arises, how? Because even in the light of that promise, I don't know about you, but I feel so helpless, so inadequate. I'm in good company. Not with you, with the Apostle Paul, who said, who is equal to such a task? And verses 13 and 14 are the answer to that question. Because the way such privileges are obtained by Christian disciples is explained by Jesus himself. Verses 13 and 14 again. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now again, the text tells us a lot here. First thing is to notice that there's a restriction to the statement, isn't it? Whatever you ask in my name. Ask anything in my name. Now many people, sadly, conclude that Christians just look at prayer as some sort of glorified vending machine. Whatever you want, burritos, burritos, whatever, Whatever you want, just put the name of Jesus on it, and out will come whatever you want. But using the name of Jesus in prayer is not like feeding prayer change into the image. There are suggestions about what it means. Is it pleading the merits of Jesus, his payment? For our request? Is it coming on the grounds that we have a deep communion with Jesus? Well, it might be that. Are we asking for the purpose of the furthering of the gospel to be completed? Well, if you study the idea of names in the Bible, you find a very interesting truth, and that is that the name has reference not just to identify the person as an individual. My name is Jerry. What's your name? This name. His name is Jesus. John says in chapter 1, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in the name of Jesus means that you're including in your belief system, in your life attitude, if you will, everything that's revealed about him. His person and his work. So it is to asking in his name. It's to ask on the foundation of the fullness of the revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is plunged into the knowledge that we have received from Jesus as God's perfect Son. As he humbled himself and is now glorified. Jesus, the one who is acknowledged as the supreme, get all three of these now, as the supreme, what offices of Christ? What are the offices? Prophet, priest, and king. The heart of prayer, the heart of the request that we make should be to abide at the center 
of what you know about the revelation of God in Christ. So it does include what I said earlier, his merits, our union with him, and the cause which he began, and we carry to completion, or he will carry it to completion, we're a part of that. But it's not limited to that. We don't limit what I can ask for. I would say that Jesus, I would say that we can't quibble about the words that Jesus uses here. What, what words does he use? He uses whatever. He uses the name, the, the term anything that you ask. It's a direct answer, you see, to the problem that we mentioned earlier, inadequacy. The principle seems to be this. You ask in prayer, and Jesus himself will act. Every time, every time we kneel before the Lord, knowing our weakness, knowing our inability, these are the words that we find to be comforting to us. For the requests that we make, as carefully as you consider any request that you're able to put before God, what do you do? You place it in the hands of the mediator, of the one who intercedes for you, into the hands of the Holy Spirit, who takes that request and takes it to the Father in the intercession. Is it only for spiritual things? Just for the benefits of the heart? Or not temporal things at all? No, I don't think so. For we're told to plead with God in prayer for what? Our daily bread. But on the other hand, you know that money, prosperity, power, even good health, ultimately, are not always the best things for us. And God knows that. He knows what's best. Here's the assurance that we have for Everything we ask as believers is wrapped in the circle of the name of Jesus Christ. And all those requests that come wrapped in Him, God will do. Is it not a comfort to us in our sense of inadequacy, our heart trouble of inadequacy, to have this very great word of encouragement? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as a God. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now the Spirit is the next remedy for heart problems. If you want to hear about that, you've got to come back tonight. Uh, but what about this one? There's a very, very straightforward application and conclusion all of this. We ask, how is it that Christian people, how is it that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has so little, does so little, accomplishes so little? How is it that we often go so timidly into the battle for the hearts and lives of people? How is it that we seem to generally stumble onward to heaven personally. This question bears directly on where we began. So troubled 
Because I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and even if I did, I don't know that I can do it. What does it take? What does it take to be a husband who leads, who leads his wife and his children? How am I supposed to be an effective witness and evangelist to my boss or to my own mother who's an unbeliever? Is it really possible for me to resolve conflicts that I'm facing with other people? And questions like that, and I could give a whole list of them, are, things, are the kinds of things that trouble the hearts of God's people. How is it that we fall so far short in our understanding and in our providence? James tells you, James tells you, we don't have because we don't ask. We don't have because we don't have. We don't ask. We have little in our families, in our marriages, in our children, because we don't ask. We have a little church because we don't ask. We struggle with sinful habits for so long because we don't ask. Why is that? When we have such a profound and great promise as this, the fact is that we have an infinite supply, an infinite supply of whatever we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the reservoir of that one who came to that woman at the well and said, you ask me and I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst. In the name of Jesus, you can find wisdom and courage and discernment and insight and truth and grace and mercy in Christ so that whatever you ask in His name, He will do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask anything in His name. He will do. Ask and you will receive. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us so profoundly. It touches us where we live. And perhaps there are some feeling overwhelmed this morning uh, because of life circumstances or particular incidents or Whatever it is, we pray that you would touch them with this word of grace, that they may know you, bring their petitions with heartfelt uh, expectation that you will do something. Do that which is right in your eyes, for your glory in their lives. We submit that to you in each one of our places, for Jesus' sake. Amen.